Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast earlier this year in March. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. All of us, people, fish, many other creatures depend on the water in Utah's rivers. The choices we make about how to develop water resources have big impacts on river habitats. In Decisions Downstream, an exhibit at the Natural History Museum of Utah, watershed scientist Sarah Knoll teams up with artists Chris Peterson and Karsten Meyer to explore new ways of seeing river habitats. Critical water decisions are being made in Utah, and Decisions Downstream highlights the water development tools, trade-offs, and alternatives that can guide our choices. Today we'll talk with Sarah Knoll, Associate Professor in the Department of Watershed Sciences at Utah State University, about new water management models, trade-offs and decision-making about watersheds, and art-science collaborations. And we'll also talk about the future of the Great Salt Lake and the fraught politics of the Mekong River system in Southeast Asia. So, uh, Sarah Nola, I guess my first question is, when you got into watershed science, I'm guessing maybe you didn't envision working with artists. I didn't envision working with artists, but it was a really fun part of this particular project. I have always had an interest in trying to distill my research down to, for the general public through, you know, through blogs or sometimes um, popular media type of articles, and so I guess this went in that same vein, but it's been very fun working with artists, and they operate in a very different way than scientists do. That communication piece is very important, isn't it? Um, the, 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 your goal there, because, uh, you know, rivers, you, you deal with what, studying river, rivers affect us all, right, in many, many ways. Yeah, rivers affect us all, and water management in particular is something that we're not taught in school. So there's a few of us like myself, who get really into it and make water models and management models. But for most people, they're not thing, it's not a, a process that we ever learn a whole lot about. So tell us a bit more about this exhibit. Maybe start with how did this uh, come about? Yeah, this came about, um, I submitted a proposal to the National Science Foundation and the, and the National Science Foundation and I are both interested in getting research out to broader audiences, so not just publishing a paper and having other academics read it, but having other people see the work. And so I had met the director of the Natural, the Natural History Museum of Utah, and I contacted her and I said, hey, you know, I've, I've been thinking about um, creating an exhibit from this work. Is this something that you'd be interested in? And she was so supportive and, and very helpful. Um, and so that really, I guess, gave me the, the green light and the go-ahead to make this work. At the same time, I had been working with Karsten Meyer, who's a photographer, and he wrote a book on dams. It was a, a photo book, and so it was pictures of dams, and I wrote an essay in it. And so it was just a particular time that I had started to work a little bit with artists, and, and I had a feeling that this could all come together. So uh, maybe describe uh, some things that people see if they go to the Natural History Museum of Utah. Uh, you sent me a couple of examples. Um, one is, um, it's, it's of Cutler Marsh. I know that because that's in the title. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so tell me what this is. Yeah, so this, this is from my work with Karsten Meyer. And I was interested in showing habitats 
more how I see them and more how I represent them in models. So with habitat, some people only see water and some people, you know, can think about every stick and plant, which is really too detailed to think about when you're, when you're looking at water management models. And so I flew two places, Cutler Marsh here, here right near Logan, and then East Canyon Dam with my drone and many different sensors on my, on my drone. So we could get um, surface temperatures. We could get multispectral information, which shows a lot of vegetation data. We could get topography. We could get visual imagery. And then Karsten is a photographer and an artist, and he created these composite images that, that took all of those data and put them into a single image. So uh, I'm reading a description here. This is from an article, if I can uh, find this. You, you mentioned the, the warm stream banks, right? And then, the, then there's deep pools, and then there's fast-flowing uh, uh, portions of the river. That's only a very partial description. A lot of data here. You're all to, uh, trying to put this in a, in a visual image so people can understand this? Yeah, I was trying to show, I guess, one of the ways that I wanted to engage with people was to use a lot of imagery and a lot of amazing imagery. And so that's where artists came in because, of course, artists can capture people and imaginations um, and feelings in a way that I think scientists do not. And so that's where, you know, the idea of working with artists really came in is thinking of how do we visualize habitats and species that are in them in a way that, that people respond to. By the way, I want to back up, uh, put aside the science, and go to the cool factor. So you, you you fly a drone, do you? I fly a drone, and there was some gripping moments when it was really windy over over dams. Not quite windy enough to not fly the drone, but but enough that I had sweaty palms for sure. Yeah, and so you what, you got sensors and such on the drone. Yep, we had sensors on the drone. Often we would have to take multiple drone flights to be able to capture all the imagery, all the data that we wanted. Um, and, yeah, and it ranged from having, well, we always had a big crew of students and, and helpers. Um, some, some days were relatively easy. Other days things went wrong, and we didn't get the data that we wanted, and we would have to go back. Um, Karsten, the artist, is, is very good at what he does, of course, and he said, Sarah, this is all going to have shadows across it, so we need to get there at dawn. So we were always flying all these drone flights at dawn, right in between, you know, when, it, when the sun, right just before the sun would come up and start, and start getting shadows across the landscape. Um, so that was both fun, and by the end I was, I was um, ready to get all the data and have that part be done. Yeah, so for the kids listening, science isn't just about sitting in a lab, right? <laughs> no, it's not. Yeah. There's certainly lab and computer time, but there's a lot of fun field work and outside time also. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned uh, a word, a key word. You said the art is better at representing feelings, right? So you got mm-hmm. the data, you got the science. Uh, there's a lot of politics involved with, with water, right? And so feelings come into it. Yeah, feelings, emotions, um, those sorts of things definitely come into it. And water, water management is interesting because a lot of the time it's funded by public bonds. So that's a case where we would really want the public to, you know, to know where their water supply comes from, to know trade-offs where, you know, with leaving water in rivers versus taking water out of rivers. Um, and so I didn't want to tell anybody what to think or how to vote, but I did want to show them rivers and habitats and hopefully 
you know, have a reaction from people from that. Yeah. Um, so on, I, I believe one thing you're trying to do is expand uh, the, the, the use of all the tools that the, that the, the science is making available. Uh, in an article I'm reading, you gave an example, uh, or the writer did, um, about uh, managers uh, planning for projects like dams. So, so what are the main factors that, uh, that, that managers look at, and, and how can we expand beyond that? Yeah, so water managers do a great job of looking at a whole host of factors, but they don't look at everything. So, wa- so water managers will always look at how much water the, the dam site can provide, how expensive it is. There's almost always very early cost estimates of how much the dam will, take, will cost to build and then how much it will cost to operate. There's almost always seismic studies so that we know if we build a dam that it's going gonna, it's gonna to be in a safe place and it's not going to fail. But from there, some of the, e- the effects on habitats and ecosystems typically are not represented in large water management models. And that's really where my research program comes in. That's one of the specialties um, that my students and I do are try to incorporate environmental objectives with human objectives like supplying water for people, for farms and, and cities, and, and for hydropower. So um, expanding, I guess, beyond stream flow to, uh, I guess, habitat, habitat, slope, water speed, et cetera. So, so is all of this information able to be combined into one model? I guess that's what you work on. Yes, it is, and it's taken... Um, it's taken a, a little while to put it together, but the idea with what we're doing is that we're using all public data sets. So similar to the data that I collect with my drone, there are satellites collecting data all the time. And so these are public data. We can you know, pull um, surface air temperatures that then we can correlate with stream temperatures. We can have, in many places, topography data, although not everywhere. We have... Um, large models of the U.S. that have already been built that have velocity and slope and, um, and stream flow. And so my research has been p- taking all of these data, putting it in together, and testing to see which, which of these attributes best represent habitats and species. So uh, I suppose, uh, you know, you, you, I mean, this, this is a, g- a great step forward, uh, being able to model all of this uh, so that you, and I guess you can, map, quote-unquote, you can, you can model uh, large areas, whole stream systems, whole river systems? Yes, that's the idea, is to model large areas and have it be, I would say, as a scientist, have it be in a generalizable way. So that means in a new place, you might update the data that goes into the model, but you can use the same approach. You're not having to recreate a fundamentally different model. And some of this is that I can do because... Um, I'm, I'm coming about in a day of age where there are lots of satellite data. There's, we live in a very data-rich world, so my modeling is necessarily very different, different than people who were researching these same problems 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and then I was going to say something else, but I forgot. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> w- w- yeah, understand. Um, so, I mean, it's one thing, uh, you know, to look at a model like this, if you're a scientist, if you're used to it, if you, if you have, uh, you know, if you've learned uh, deeply in this field, quite another thing to have a member of the general public walk up to one of these things. So is, is that what you're trying to do in this exhibit, is to expand that? 
Yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to show some habitat in simple ways that, that people will hopefully react to and hopefully enjoy seeing it. Maybe that'll um, motivate them to go outside and spend some time on a river, whether you know whether they're fishing or hiking or, or boating, whatever it is they like to do, or, or in some of our lakes. Um, maybe it'll just as they read papers in the in the newspaper or articles in the newspaper, it will it will help them to think deeply about those or to read them in the first place. And so I just I really wanted to engage people. What's the uh, you know what the reaction has been? What uh, what people how they're reacting? This exhibit's been up for you know a couple of months, right? Uh, a few months. It's been up for about two months, and it'll stay another maybe four months. Um, so far, all of the feedback I've gotten is good. We are just about to launch a, an evaluation of it. And so I'll have students going to the museum and formally, you know, giving people a very quick poll to see how they felt about it and what, and what they think about the exhibit. And that will help me come back into my research so I can think about how to better um, communicate with, with the public and in the future. What's the, what's the, what, I guess I'll phrase it this way, what's the ideal future for this. Uh, your models in front of uh, commissions and such when, when uh, water use is debated? Yeah, I, I would say the ideal use for these types of models is to influence decision-making in some way. And so um, whether by saying, you know, these options, you know, A through D are, are not very promising and E, F, and G are, are, much, are much more promising or identify places where we can maybe find, find compromise when there's just fundamentally competing water uses. Um, both of those I see as, as the end objectives for this kind of modeling. If you just joined us, uh, we are talking with Sarah Knoll. She is Associate Professor uh, in the Department of Watershed Sciences at Utah State University. Uh, and uh, she is the moving force behind an exhibit, which is uh, now at the Natural History Museum of Utah. Uh, it's named Decisions Downstream, and it's up uh, there through the end of July of this year. Next year, it moves to the Swanner Eco Center. Um, I believe that's in Park City, right? That's in Park City, yes. Yeah, and uh, should remind people that the Natural History Museum of Utah is in Salt Lake City. You're listening to Access Utah. Our guest is Sarah Knoll, uh, Associate Professor in the Department of Watershed Sciences at USU. Uh, coming up in the next segment, uh, Sarah Knoll says that the trade-offs in water management usually come down to five big issues. We'll hear about that. And later in the program, we'll be talking about the future of the Great Salt Lake and the politics of the Mekong River system in Southeast Asia. More following this. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Westside Coffee Company on 100 West in Logan, offering breakfast and lunch with vegan and gluten-free options. Kitchen open from 7 a.m. to 3 p.m., pastry and non-cooked items available all day until 6 p.m., Monday through Sunday. Details at the westsidecoffeecompany.com. Hanging baskets and planters look beautiful early in the growing season and make an amazing addition to any yard or garden. However, by the time the heat arrives in late June or July, they can struggle and suffer without proper care and eventually find a new home in the compost pile. 
The secret recipe to keep your hanging baskets and planters looking beautiful all summer requires only a few simple steps. Fertilize, hydrate, and repeat. Use a water-soluble or liquid fertilizer every three to four days and hydrate the soil completely on a daily basis. Use a soil penetrant or hydrating agent if your baskets dry out too fast. Consistent watering, a regular fertilizer regimen, and your persistence can make all the difference in a gorgeous planter or an early addition to the compost heap. Support for The Garden Spot comes from Logan Extermination, serving Cache Valley for over 45 years, offering year-round pest control, lawn, tree, and shrub maintenance. Information at loganextermination.net. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast earlier this year in March. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Sarah Knoll, Associate Professor in the Department of Watershed Sciences at Utah State University. Uh, she is behind a, uh, a very interesting exhibit. It's right now at the Natural History Museum of Utah uh, through the end of July, and then next year it'll move to the Swanner Eco Center. It's called Decisions Downstream. I'm going to read a, a part of the blurb from the Natural History Museum. All of us, people, fish, and many other creatures, depend on the water in Utah's rivers. The choices we make about how to develop water resources have big impacts on river habitats. In Decisions Downstream, watershed scientist Sarah Noll teams up with artists Chris Peterson and Karsten Meyer to explore new ways of seeing river habitats. And so you're invited to come uh, immerse yourself in beautiful large-scale images created from layers of scientific data. Original paintings that capture the transcendent experience of encountering wild fish and projections onto 3D maps that tell us our stories of our past water development choices and those we face in the future. I want to talk about the second of those. Uh, you sent uh, over a um, uh, an illustration, a, a painting, I guess it is, artist Chris Peterson and a uh, Bonneville, Bonneville cutthroat trout. Yes. So I was, I had started working already with Karsten, the photographer, and then um, it, it, I realized that there wasn't, we didn't have very, very, I would say, sufficient art showing the species in the, in the rivers that we, that we really manage for. And so at that point, I reached out to Chris Peterson, who's a longtime friend and a Utah-based artist. He lives in Salt Lake City, or I think actually maybe he just moved to Holiday. But so he lives locally, and I said, you know, hey, I'm doing this exhibit. Would you would you paint some pictures of fish? And so he painted a bluehead sucker and he painted a Bonneville cutthroat trout, and they're amazing. They just, I mean, they're vibrant. They jump out at you. They're they're huge. They just they come to life. I think for visitors. Um, so I want to jump in there. So uh, and those two species of fish are not by accident, right? You didn't just choose those at random. I believe you st- you've studied those two. Uh, particularly. Tell us about that and the, and the results. Yeah, I picked those two species of fish because they're two species that Utah managers are trying to conserve with the, with the, um, with the goal of, taking that, of not having them listed on the Endangered Species Act. So I'm not an ecologist, I'm not a fish biologist, but I, I work alongside them very often. And so I knew that these are two species that managers are trying to preserve in our state. Um, they're popular for fishing. They're popular with anglers. And so, again, they were also, well, especially Bonneville cutthroat trout, less so for bluehead sucker. But so there are also, you know, some species that the public could identify with. 
Um, so, uh, I, th- I think one of the things you try to f- find out, right, is, is you talk about, uh, managing rivers, um, is, you know, uh, how, uh, what factors, uh, lead to thriving of these species, right? And it could be different factors for each species. And I, in fact, I think that's what you found. Yeah, we did find that. We found that, um, well, we built, you know, fairly simple models, and we found pretty good fit with stream temperature for representing Bonneville cutthroat trout, and that's not totally surprising because trout are cold water species. And then we found with gradient is the, is the best variable to represent bluehead sucker. And, you know, when, when reaches get way too steep or get really flat, we tend to see less habitat. And we did that. Um, my student, Greg Goodrum, did that as part of his master's thesis using data from um, the Migration Initiative, which is part of the Division of Water of Wildlife Resources. And so we could take our models and validate them with where uh, Utah agency scientists are observing fish. And then with that, we could say, which are the best model fits? And that was really lucky because if we had to go out and capture fish all through Utah, it would have, one, cost a fortune. It wouldn't have been my expertise. And we would have, in this, in this time period, we would have only gotten a fraction of the samples. So that was very lucky that, that Utah agency scientists were willing to share their data with us. Uh, so I wonder if you talk about that, uh, the third uh, part of the exhibit. And there might be other parts, but at least mentioned in this blurb, uh, projections onto 3D maps that tell the stories of our past water development choices and those we face in the future. Yeah, I, we have two, um, two projections onto maps. And the first shows work uh, that, on removing small in-stream barriers. So when I say that, people often think of big, large water supply dams. And those sometimes will be removed. Um, there's been some famous you know, cases on, in the Oa River and now in the Klamath in California. But these dam removals or barrier removals, we're looking at removing very small barriers. So think of things like culverts under roads and sometimes um, diversion ditches or weirs, removing those types of barriers to help improve habitat and connectivity between habitat. And by the way, let me also just say most of these barrier removals have been done by a few different groups like Trout Unlimited, on the Department of Natural Resources and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I want to read uh, just a couple of sentences here. You're quoted in this article in Utah State uh, Today. Uh, the writer is Lael Gilbert. Uh, so here's Sarah Knoll. When I look at rivers, you say I see mosaics of habitats, warm stream banks, deep pools, and fast-moving runs. I also see water that could be developed, uh, delivered to cities and farms or used to generate hydropower. Uh, the decisions we make to manage our rivers are complex with trade-offs between developing water and maintaining the ecosystems that sustain us. And you say, my goal is to bring these trade-offs to the forefront so we can ask ourselves as a society what a balance we value. So that is important. There are any, any of these decisions, there are trade-offs. We need, I guess you're saying we need to clearly see those trade-offs to make good decisions. That's exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying we need to quantify those trade-offs and be able to think about them to make better decisions. 
Uh, so can you give me an example of, of some some trade-offs that I guess it was right there in your, your example? Uh, you, you know, you need to pre- you want to preserve habitat, uh, want to pre- want to generate power. What, uh, what are the trade-offs that we're usually looking at? Yeah, so the, well, the trade-offs with water usually are, are, I would say, five big issues. There's water supply, so that's both to cities and farms. There's hydropower development. There's flood protection or flood control. There's recreation, which is important, thinking of states like Utah, where people might come just for a fishing vacation. And then there's environmental uses, so keeping our, our rivers healthy and our, and our ecosystems healthy. And sometimes, not surprisingly, those, those big water uses conflict, right? We could take some water out of rivers for a while and have very few trade-offs, have very few repercussions, but after a while we usually get to some tipping point where there are repercussions. Or sometimes we could take water out of rivers, and it's okay as long as we maintain cool stream temperatures and give, and give fish and other biota somewhere to be, some habitat that can sustain them. Uh, you're also quoted as saying it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. I think sometimes we assume that it has to be. Sometimes it probably is, but uh, often, sometimes, we can find a, a balance that isn't a zero-sum game. Is what you're saying? Yep. Sometimes we can find things that aren't a zero-sum t- game. And these thinking about taking, removing small in-stream barriers is one such case. So one of my master's students a couple years ago, her name is Maggie Kraft, she wrote a paper looking at taking out big dams, which would affect water supply and sometimes hydropower, or removing lots of in-stream barriers. And she, she found that removing lots of these in-stream barriers is much cheaper, doesn't affect water supply, but can, but can really connect aquatic habitat in some fundamental ways. And with those, that type of modeling, then because we put all the in-stream barriers in the model, then we could really look at which are the most important barriers to remove. And so that's a place that modeling like mine can really inform decision-making, and hopefully we can find the cheapest decisions that give us the best results. Probably an easier lift politically, too, I would imagine, you know, removing some, it is, an easier some smaller barriers yeah. than the big dams, yeah. Um, what do you, what do you think people, um, I, I could imagine managers obviously looking at these models and, and wanting to, to, to see them. Uh, but, but I think, I think I uh, hear your desire to, to get this out just to the general public. Yeah, usually there's to actually run the models usually takes some technical skills and so usually on my website, once everything is completed and published, usually we do, I do put code, I, you know, host that in repositories so anyone can use it. That being said, I don't think I've ever had anyone from the general public start to download these models and use them, although I would love to see that. That would be great. But it is things that other water resources managers and decision makers might take a look at. You listed the five factors there in, uh, you know, in, in water management and, and that you look at in watershed science. Uh, is any one of those coming to the fore more than it has been in the past, at least in our area? I think in our area, water supply is. We have, um, we have on the horizon some possibilities of large new dams on the Bear, Bear River. Um, we have... We talk a lot about conservation in the state. We're a state that we use a lot of water. Um, 
we talk sometimes about water supply moving from agricultural water uses to urban supplies. We have a um, new test water bank in Cache Valley and some other places in the state. And so I would say water supply, thinking about how we're going to provide water, um, you know, with climate variability, with maybe longer droughts, and with the growing population that we anticipate for Utah, I would say that's the the primary goal that folks are, are focusing on right now. If you just joined us, we were talking with Sarah Knoll. She's Associate Professor uh, in the USU Department of Watershed Sciences at Utah State University. Her website is sarahnoll.org, and uh, she has an exhibit uh, which is ongoing at the Natural History Museum of Utah in Salt Lake City. It's, it runs through July 31st. It's called Decisions Downstream, uh, Blending Science and uh, Data with Art. Uh, she's teamed up with artists Karsten Meyer and Chris Peterson to uh, visualize water resources decision-making. This is funded by the National Science Foundation. Next year, uh, this exhibit will be going to the Swanner Eco Center in Park City. And you are listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams. Uh, coming up following a break in our final segment with Sarah Noll, we'll change gears. We'll be talking about the future of the Great Salt Lake and the politics of the Mekong River system in Southeast Asia. Hope you'll join us following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984, covering news, politics, music, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. America's military leaders are looking to the future. What do I think the future is? I think it's algorithmic warfare. Weapons that can think for themselves, powered by artificial intelligence. I didn't believe that AI had any business taking a human life. Missiles with a mind of their own on the next Reveal. Monday at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Every week, Undiscipline brings you conversations about fascinating new scientific research and the people who bring it to life. I'm Shoshana Buxbaum, and I'm excited to be taking the reins as the show's new host. You might recognize my voice from Utah Public Radio's newscasts or my Project Resilience special about people with disabilities. Join me every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on Utah Public Radio to learn about how researchers are working to make sense of the world around us. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast earlier this year in March. We're back with Sarah Knoll. I'm Tom Williams with uh, Access Utah. Thanks for listening. We're talking about water, watershed sciences, and uh, how we visualize that using art. Sarah Knoll is Associate Professor in the Department of Watershed Sciences at Utah State University. Uh, she has an exhibit, which is open right now at the Natural History Museum of Utah, called Decisions Downstream that runs through July 31st. She's teamed up with artists Karsten Meyer and Chris Peterson to help visualize water resources decision-making. This is funded by the National uh, Science uh, Foundation. I want to go to a, another watershed entirely, talk about the, the, the Mekong River. You're quoted in a National Geographic article on that. But before we do that, uh, anything else you'd like to say uh, about this exhibit? 
Um, I don't think so. I think we've covered the big ones. I would encourage people to go see it. Um, it was really fun to make. I appreciate everyone at the Natural History Museum of Utah for working with me. They were phenomenal to work with, and I look forward to going out and, and people checking it out. All right, very good. Through the end of July, Natural History Museum of uh, Utah. That's, uh, I think it's on or near the uh, University of Utah campus in Salt Lake City. So, uh, as I was reading this article, this is uh, linked from uh, your website, um, which is uh, serenol.org. Um, make sure I got that correct. Yes, yeah, serenol.org. Um, it's about the Mekong River. And the headline, uh, this is from the summer of 2019, Mekong River at its lowest in 100 years, threatening food supply. Subtitle, a combination of drought and controversial upstream water politics is setting up Southeast Asia for potential disaster. And on this program, we talk a lot about the Colorado River and the, and the politics. And, and reading this article, I was thinking, uh, wow, this, the politics here kind of make the Colorado River politics look, seem a little quaint. Um, so uh, how did you uh, come to, I guess, be familiar with the Mekong and study this? I have, I, it was through my friend and collaborator who's named, who's named Zeb Hogan. Zeb studies big fish and big fish conservation. We were friends from when we both went to graduate school at UC Davis. And he was writing a proposal on, on studying um, fish and sustainability in the Mekong River. And he said, Sarah, I would really like to have a water, environmental water person, water resources management expertise on this proposal. Um, and so I joined forces with him and a number of other people, and we wrote, we wrote a proposal to USAID, um, and, and we were funded. And so then I started going to um, Cambodia at least once a year until COVID hit, and now I haven't gone for a little bit. Um, but it's been great because I've been able to go out there and see see the Mekong River, see its tributaries, see some of the dams that are being built there, see the amazing fish biodiversity that's in the river, um, talk to people sometimes if they speak English or sometimes through interpreters because my Khmer is not very good. Um, but so it's been a great a great project and an eye-opening project. So you were in Cambodia, were you? Yes, I've been yeah. all in Cambodia. Yeah. So the Mekong is, uh, I mean, it's, it's several nations, right? Um, it's Southeast Asia. Um, well, one of the problems here with, with it, at least at that point, I don't know how it is now, but uh, at least at that point, uh, it was very dry. And one of the problems I was reading here, is, at least on the some of the fish uh, species, is if there's, they call it a pulse, is it? If there's no change in the, in the water level. Um, from flooding, uh, that could be a problem. Yes, the Mekong River had a very um, abrupt and obvious pulse, a flood pulse. So there's in Southeast Asia, there's a very um, set dry season followed by a very, very obvious wet season. And so, of course, that translates into hydrology and into runoff and into stream flow. And fish use those those pulses as cues to migrate, often between spawning and rearing habitat. And so with, with dams being built, that flood pulse has already been diminished, and we anticipate that it will continue to be diminished. One of the factors here is a bunch of dams being built on the Mekong, right? Uh, uh, this originates in China, I believe, and then, yep, and then flows south. China. 
it starts in China and it goes through Myanmar, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. And so far, I think about 60 hydropower dams have been commissioned with over, I want to say, 10,000 megawatts of power. So bringing a lot of power to this region. Um, but again, there's trade-offs now with, with fish production and, and fish biodiversity. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if China meant to flex its muscle with the, these dams upstream. I think they were, they were testing something out, but it, it really lowered the level for the lower stream uh, countries. And now apparently they're worried. You know, China has, has some power here with those dams upstream. Yes, China has a lot of power with the dams upstream. Um, and there's not always great data sharing or communication between, between those nations. And so the, the lower Mekong riparian countries um, probably feel like they don't have very much control over the Mekong, even though the Mekong River, um, at least Cambodia, but I think the, the whole region, the, the, the people there eat fish. That's their main source of protein. So if the hydrology changes so much that fish can no longer be produced at some, some large levels, then that threatens food security for the whole region. Um, so you're, uh, you're quoted in this article, again, National Geographic, I think it's July issue of 2019. Uh, you say the, the, this, what we've been talking about, about the dams, highlights underlying inequities among Mekong Basin uh, countries. So richer nations, uh, you know, they put in the hydropower and they get the benefits from that. Poorer nations are more affected by environmental degradation. And as you just said, foods, reduce food security. Yes, and that's exactly right. Some countries, the richer nations, are building more hydropower dams, and then they can act as power exporters. They can export power to other countries. So other countries might be trying to buy power, but they're also facing the environmental repercussions of these dams. So they're very much are losing countries and winning countries mm. in, the, in the Mekong Basin. And understand there is a commission uh, formed by these nations. China, I think, doesn't participate. Right. There's a commission called the Mekong River Commission, and China doesn't participate in it. Yeah. And never. What's the, I don't know if you uh, kept touch with that. What's the situation now? Is it, uh, it was very dry at least at that point a couple of years ago. I don't know what it is now. There's been a number of subsequent dry years. And so I think, I think that year in 2019 was the worst. But 20, 2020 was also dry. Um, so... We'll see what this year brings. But there's been a number of dry years that I think partly were based on climate and partly were based on um, dam impacts. So as a watershed scientist, um, I, I don't know. You went into watershed science. I don't know whether you, you uh, were aware that you'd probably have to have at least an unofficial minor in political science, right? Water is lifeblood, <laughs> right? Water, there are power struggles. This is an illustration. There, yep, there are big power struggles. And, of course, in the Western USA, we know that inherently, that there are power struggles over money, or excuse me, over water. My background, my bachelor's degree is in economics, and I always appreciate that because at least it, it helps me thinking about the valuation part, which is a nice way to, to connect with people who maybe don't think about acre feet or CFS of water, but they do think in terms of dollars, and so that's a nice way to connect. But yeah, the political science part is a whole is a whole nother ball of wax, um, and usually we bring in some experts to help us with that side. Yeah, 
Uh, by the way, I didn't follow up with the, the, the folks that you met, got to know a little bit there in Cambodia. Um, what was your impression? You know, the people in Cambodia are so, are so nice and welcoming. Um, I would say they, they often don't have, it's hard to wrap your head around the change that will come to, to their rivers with all these dams. And that's very similar to when we built dams across across the U.S. I don't think anyone at that time really really could conceptualize all the changes that we would see decades later. Um, but but that's the the place that Cambodia is in right now. Yeah. Uh, so what? Obviously, very involved with this exhibit. Uh, very involved with modeling. What, uh, what else are you working on? I am working, yeah, on modeling. I'm working on, I guess, I would say my research program is trying to improve um, the environmental representation of, of, or representation of environmental objectives in water modeling. I'm working across the western U.S. in Idaho and Utah and California, previously Nevada and Oregon. So I work a lot in the western U.S. where we have major water scarcity and drought problems, um, and then increasingly in, in other countries like Chile and Cambodia and, and the lower Mekong. Um, I forgot, again, I forgot what else I was going to say with that. Right, right. That's, that's a variety of things. Uh, by the way, we just have a couple minutes left here. Um, on, on your website, serenol.org, you have a couple of articles that you've uh, you put up about the Great Salt Lake. Uh, I don't know if you've done any studies there, but involved with with that, it's it is quite the phenomenon. Um, vast swaths of of uh, what used to be underwater are now exposed. Yes, um, Great Salt Lake has been the the lake level of Great Salt Lake has re- been reduced. We estimate by about eleven vertical feet, and that's from people using water, so people taking water out before it gets to Great Salt Lake. So an uh, important thing for Great Salt Lake, um, some that I've been working on and countless other researchers have been working on is thinking about high, how high should the Great Salt Lake be, how high should that level be to maintain salinity and all the ecosystems and biology that depends on that lake, and then maybe how to get, how to get water, some water allocations or dedications to Great Salt Lake so that it doesn't turn into one of the other numerous saline lakes around the world that has been declining in recent years. Yeah, you, you you see pictures of some of those lakes, uh, some of which have dried up almost entirely. It's um, it, uh, it punches you in the gut. Yes, it does. It's yeah, it's terrible, and and it's been fun for me to work on Great Salt Lake because I started actually where I became interested in water resource resources management and watershed sciences was when I worked for a couple summers at Mona Lake, and that's what really I think kind of lit a fire in my belly and made me interested in water resources issues. So it's it's been really nice to get a faculty position here at Utah State University where I'm so close to the Great Salt Lake, and I can continue on with that interest. So you're saying there, there are some options, apparently? Perhaps this is reversible? Um, yeah, I think it's not too late for Great Salt Lake, for sure. I would, I would say I'm a glass-half-full person on that. I think we have a good number of options we have not passed any threshold at all, um, and and hopefully the the citizens in Utah really value our lake and you know and and will recognize that. I think a number of years ago there was an idea, or maybe a couple decades ago, there was an idea that water that flowed to Great Salt Lake was wasted, 
And I would say I see that changing. And now people don't talk about water that goes to Great Salt Lake as being wasted. They think about it is going to Great Salt Lake and maintaining this Great Lake that we all recognize and recreate on in different ways or value in different ways. We'll reach the end of our uh, time here with Sarah Knoll. She's Associate Professor in the Department of Watershed Sciences at Utah State University. And uh, she has an exhibit. It's open right now at the Natural History Museum of Utah uh, through uh, July. Uh, It's named Decisions Downstream. And she's teamed up with uh, artists Karsten Meyer and Chris Peterson to visualize water resources decision-making. This is funded by the National Science Foundation. That exhibit next year will move to the Swatter Eco Center in Park City. And Sarah Nold's website is sarahnold.org. Sarah Nold, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for taking some time with us. Yeah, thanks so much for chatting with me. When you're homeless, it's like swimming in molasses. Fortunately, many homeless in southwest Utah are finding their footing thanks to Switchpoint and Carol Hollowell, its founder and CEO. Carol owns a warm smile and get-her-done determination. A successful businesswoman, Carol had a street corner epiphany in St. George seven years ago. She spotted a disheveled man in a wheelchair, bought him coffee, heard his story, and helped him secure identification that ended years of homelessness and helplessness. That prompted her to open a homeless resource center in 2014. She has since added a soup kitchen, community garden, food pantry, rapid rehousing program, and a substance use disorder residential treatment center. Her clients help run micro businesses, including a thrift store, boutique, and doggy daycare. In 2020, she opened a 55 unit housing complex and, in fall 2021, will open a round-the-clock child care center called Stepping Stones. She called her nonprofit Switchpoint, named after a switch that takes trains in a different direction. Her philosophy? If I provide opportunities, will you step up to the plate? This isn't about getting things for free. It's about value and self-worth and stepping up. For example, Rent in Switchpoint's Riverwalk Village depends on what you can afford. The more you earn, the more you pay. But you don't get booted just because you're financially stabilizing your life. The homeless or unhoused or residentially insecure know the reality of Utah's housing crisis. Even with each person working two full-time low-paying jobs, a couple can't find a rental. Add a couple of kids, disability, and you're living in a battered car and bathing in restrooms. Full disclosure, my wife and I are Switchpoint donors. I've grappled with homeless issues in Fresno, California as a news reporter and serving on a homeless commission. Carol is a do-gooder who pencils things out. Her community collaborators and volunteers are many. Three quarters of Switchpoint's funding comes from private donors and profits from its micro-businesses. In Carol's words, the farther away we get from government dollars and regulations, the better we get. She sometimes asks her clients a deceptively simple question. When were the happiest parts of your life and how do we get you back there? Next, Switchpoint finds the most qualified staff member to be the client's advocate, identifying the barriers and working to remove them. 
Her efforts have drawn state and national recognition. She's partnered with advocates in Salt Lake City and Tooele. When she's feeling tense, she leans on a Jimmy Buffett song, a tribute to survivors of Hurricane Katrina. Breathe in, breathe out, move on. Speaking of moving on, this is John Taylor saying goodbye after nearly a year providing Dateline St. George commentaries for Utah Public Radio. I've always concluded by wishing you a joyful day. I now add wishes that you support your public radio and places making a difference, places like Switchpoint. Next up, it's Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Tanya Gibson. I track things in various ways through planners, notebooks, and journals. I track anything and everything in my life and the life of my family. I have notebooks filled with dates and book lists, TV shows to keep track of and wait over time. Appointments and travel and my innermost thoughts are all represented in my stack of notebooks. I read up on the history of commonplace books and the importance of keeping one and writing things down, treating our brain as a processing center instead of a long-term storage facility. In fact, if it concerns tracking, writing, journaling, I probably have, at the very least, heard of it if not tried it outright. When my sister-in-law married last fall, I bought a beautiful red-bound book dedicated to recipes. It was sectioned, but not formally, so you could log your favorite stew recipe on the page next to your college roommate's famous double brownie recipe. The side of the page had tick boxes and sections to delineate course types and cooking times, whether it was diet-specific as well as your own personal rating system. This seemed the perfect mix between traditional blank recipe book and a little more modern, just right, in fact, for a continual tracking of favorite foods. With it in hand, I found a dozen or so family favorites and copied them down, making sure there was plenty of room in the book for their own favorites to be collected over time as the years grew. I made sure to pick up two of the same notebooks at the same time, one for me and one for my son, for in the future. And then I picked up one of my various notebooks and started making plans and notes. What exactly did I want to archive in mine, in my son's? How exactly did I want to go about the process of tracking and archiving a life of food in these books? My mom has a book. Well, more of an O-ring clip with long, skinny, colorful cardstock than book that has been in her kitchen for as long as I remember. It's filled with recipes from some family and a lot of church and community members. Names familiar and some I have to ask about, details fuzzy from a life removed. The recipes are made with ingredients no longer found on shelves. Every time I have to ask my mom what oleo is again, and she reminds me, again, it's a substitute for lard, a common margarine, as well as ingredients that are timeless. One recipe is for my grandmother's enchilada pie, a sort of Mexican twist on a lasagna. I have hazy memories of eating it growing up, but making it as an adult, I found it not to my taste. I wondered if I had done it wrong, as the instructions are a little spotty. Should I have fried the tortillas first, adjusted the seasoning, or was it simply that my memories were off and palates have changed? I'm grateful for the few recipes I have written down from my childhood, but they are, well, few and fewer still the things written in my grandmother's and mother's handwritings. I have memories and know the stories, but I do wonder how you track recipes when they are mostly the stuff of lore and not always written down. As we head for a visit to my parents' house, this question is on my mind. 
I'm toying with different ideas ranging from a time-consuming activity of going through my mother's recipe box and simply photocopying anything I may want or need, or trying to fill in the gaps with my own memories and hoping my mother remembers what I'm talking about, to videotaping my mother as she recreates some of my favorites. I'm hoping this might allow repeated viewings so I can finally replicate my mother's biscuits and get a solid recipe down for posterity's sake. But given that I have tried and failed more than a dozen times in the decades I've been trying, I'm not sure the video would provide any help. I'm not certain any of these methods will happen, or work, or what I'm even in search of with this project. I know I want to fill my son's book with recipes that will travel life with him, but is that the place for the spud nuts I know and love and that link me to the spinning stool in my paternal grandmother's kitchen, but he has never actually tasted? Or will he appreciate more me writing in my adjusted, just perfectly to our taste, beef stroganoff recipe that he asks for repeatedly? I know the answer, clearly. But as I age and my tracking and journaling intensifies, I want to leave it all for him, every piece of history. Maybe that's the real reason I bought two of those beautiful red books, one for the history and one for his future, his story. I hope he learns to appreciate both. This is Tanya Gibson for Bread and Butter. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org. United States, women make about 82% of what men make for comparable work. And the numbers in Utah are more extreme, where a woman earns approximately 71 cents for every dollar a man earns. I'm Dr. Susan Madsen, founding director of the Utah Women in Leadership Project. In our next podcast episode, we'll dig into the gender wage gap and what it means for Utah women. Listen now at utwomen.org.